Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Peter Rainier, Principal Director of Planning at DMH Stallard in Crawley. He has had more than 25 years experience of planning in both the public and private sector, residential, commercial and leisure projects. And Peter is also a planning advisory service accredited contractor. This program will discuss some of the frameworks that determine the planning process and its impact on practice. So thanks very much indeed, Peter. Thanks for joining us. First question is just to ask you for a short bio, where you're from, where you studied and all that kind of stuff. Well, I studied at um, at South Bank, did a planning degree there, postgraduate, and I did a geography degree in Plymouth. I've had about, as you said, about 16 years experience in uh, local government, bit of forward planning, bit of development control as it was then, development management as it's known now. And then for the last 20 years, I've been in private sector working for DMH Stallard on a range of schemes from anything from a you know, an individual house through to Brighton of Albion's football stadium or a, a large development, thousands of houses on the edge of a, a town or, or city. So quite a wide experience, I think. I read out planning advisory service accredited contractor. What the hell is that? Well, um, I think the RTPI and the government uh, set up planning advisory service, mainly probably about 10 years or more ago now, 15 years ago, when local authorities were finding it difficult and they wanted a group of people that could assist them go into a local authority and perhaps assist in management or assist in terms of a system that might be more practical or more effective or might help them with sort of planning appeals and things like that, um, where they didn't have staff resources to do it. So some people have done a great deal of work in that sector. I've not done a great deal, um, although I did get accredited by talking about my experience in private and public sector. But I have done recently quite a lot of planning appeals for local authorities where where they've refused planning permission, often against officer recommendation, and tried to assist the local authority with defending those sort of difficult decisions to defend. Is that like a reflection? of lack of staffing within local authority planning departments is that what it is or lack of expertise or just you happen to be yeah partly lack of expertise partly they don't want to defend a situation that they've recommended for approval as as professional officers keeping their integrity and keeping in tune with rtpi code of conduct etc but probably the the things i've probably not been involved in so much like helping local authorities with their systems and the like you know it's it's just a, a bit of a a wise probably older head looking at their systems and seeing how they can act effectively i mean i think there has been a bit of a drain on on the planning profession recently you know local government are finding it hard to re- um, to get new planners in particularly of a, a level that can deal with the complex you know the graduates are probably okay but those that have got some experience a bit more difficult and even private sector are finding the same thing at the moment i think the the resourcing issue is a, is probably a key factor for planning going forward yeah, well, I think from lorry drivers to doctors, it's a post-pandemic uh, issue, isn't it? I don't know yeah. how, how we resolve it. Anyway, that's a wider question than the podcast can address. But in terms of uh, a, a town planner, a chartered town planner, as you are, what, what do you actually do? Well, my current job advise clients, usually applicants or potential applicants, potential developers, about the planning system, about the best way to get planning permission, occasionally act for objectors and help them to to object to schemes. Yeah, and, and that can take a form 
uh, of I want to make a planning application on my back garden for a single dwelling. How do I best go about that? What other consultants do I need? Who do I need to engage with? Do I need to engage with my neighbours? Do I need to engage with politicians? And then, you know, and what's my chances? Giving them an opinion. What are, what are my chances of success? Trying to be open and honest about that. And then they make the decision whether to go forward or not. And then in terms of making that judgment, a lot of that goes toward the plan that's in place, what policies are in place nationally, locally, and that really guides planning applications. That is what the local authority will base their decision upon. Okay, but but it's like, uh, you know, in, in architecture, we're always trained to say we cannot guarantee getting planning permission. Uh, I presume you still have that proviso in your documents as well, do you? Yeah, we're in a process and... Um, planning officers or politicians you know uh, members of planning committees making decisions it's, it's taken to a degree out of your hands you just have to give them a, a judgment as to this is going to have a great chance of success or a, a low chance of success yeah. or somewhere in between <laughs> okay <laughs> well i mean you, you mentioned it uh, just earlier there in terms of the the, the structure the hierarchy or what have you of, of uh, planning information so this is what this podcast is about can we just dive into it so there's the primary and secondary legislation. So just give us some indication as to what that means. Primary legislation is basically the, the act, the basic, the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act is where it all started. That was really the beginnings of planning in this country post the war, trying to get development happening, but trying to control it so that it could enhance the economy, but also provide new housing for people. Um, so that, that sort of set out a framework for that and talked about things like compulsory purchase orders and things like that. Um, but then the secondary legislation that comes along afterwards are things like the use classes order. So the, the, the Planning Act might say, well, it does say that you need planning permission for building and also for changes of use. But then the secondary legislation, if you like, the use classes order sets out what those use classes are, how they're divided up. And then there might be other secondary legislation that says certain things are permitted development. So certain, certain changes of use from one use to another are permitted. And the, the, really, your secondary legislation gives more detail. It seems that every Town and Country Planning Act is called the Town and Country Planning Act with just a different date at the end of it. So there's the Town and Country Planning Act 1990, which seems to have a great influence as well, uh, where sections 55 to 61 define development and sets up when planning permission is required. So can you possibly give us a shorthand version of what that act or that, that definition is? I mean, fundamentally, planning is required for any, forgive me if I've got the precise wording wrong, but for any development and development is defined as any building on, in, over, under land or any material change of use. So that that is basically in a nutshell. So, you know, anything and the courts have then gone on and debated what is development and you know, whether or not you're putting a bit of a new cladding on the outside of a building. Is that development or not? But generally it's accepted that it's anything that's normally undertaken by a builder. And then any any forming perhaps of a basement would be classed as as development. And then material changes of use, which again, yeah, are defined within the use classes order from one use to another, from residential through to business uses, which are now class E. So those changes of use within use classes order, some of those are permitted and some of them are not. So it, it gets more complicated if you like after that. But in a nutshell, you know, any built form and any change of use. Got it, got it. Um, so the act itself gives us this kind of, as I said, a hierarchy of uh, plans, 
So if we can talk through some of those, starting with the local development plan, what is that? Where do we find it? Why do we refer to it? Why do we need to refer to it? The key document in terms of looking at planning and looking at whether or not you're going to get consent or how to back up your case if you're trying to get permission. The first one is the NPPF, the National Planning Policy Framework, which gets reviewed quite regularly by government. Latest version at the moment is 2021. It's quite a succinct document, 50 pages or so, and it sets out the, the general government policy to do with plan making heritage issues, housing issues, environmental issues. And so within that, plan making is seen as the most important part of planning, if you like, and how the decisions are going to be made on your planning application. There's then a hierarchy, if you like, of plans from locally. There's the local plan. Uh, You'd find that by searching for your local authority on the internet and then searching planning, local plan, etc. Quite often they'll have a core strategy which would set high-level policies about their district. So it might say where development's going to be restrained, where there are AOMBs or where there's national parks, etc., and where they're, they're going to constrain development, but also where they're going to allow development at a quite a strategic level. So normally it might allocate zones for a significant development, you know, the key core parts of, of where development is going to take place, you know, on the edge of a town, there's going to be you know, 3000 houses in this location. And then from there, there's quite often, not every authority, but quite often there'll then be a, a secondary plan, which will be a, a site allocations document, which might then allocate more sites and smaller sites and give more detail. So it might give more detail about the the big scheme that might be 3,000 houses or whatever, uh, but it also would, would perhaps allocate lots of other sites for smaller development because it, generally the government and development industry think a mix is a good idea not to have all your eggs in one basket, one new town, and then if that fails to deliver quickly, your housing s- supply is not kept up. But uh, to have some sites for 100 and sites for 50 and sites for 25, and indeed on the edge of a you know, small village that might only be. 200 residents or something, having a little site for 10 or 15 might be the appropriate level of development for them that helps just to sustain the village a little bit, but not swamp it. So you have this kind of overarching plan about what might be required in, a, in an area. Uh, and like you said, that might be, you know, in terms of hundreds or thousands of, of new dwellings, let's say. But if you are like an ordinary punter, you've got a garden, you want to build a house in the, you know, your surplus land you've got at the back. How does that fit into the calculation or, or doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're generally known as windfall sites that are just in addition to the big ones. So every authority will have a housing target of several thousand houses per year or several hundred houses per year. And then within that, they'll allocate sites that they hope will deliver those. But there'll also be an allowance for windfall because, you know, historically, a few people have built in there their garden or they're on their land that's just a little small site or there's been a commercial site redeveloped within the town or village and things like that so the principles though are that the plan will alloc- will, will zone what is they determine built up area what is town village etc and what is countryside or out there is outside and within as a very simple principle those areas that are within the built up area will be acceptable for development so there'll be a presumption in favor of development within the built-up area and outside the built-up area in the countryside there'll be a presumption of development restraint so if you've got a house with a very large garden 
in a built-up area, you've got a great chance of getting permission for a, an extra house or two. If you've got a large house in the countryside, your chances are quite limited. Just as an aside, since you mentioned presumption of development, the presumption of sustainable development, which is a phrase which is in the MPPF, what does that mean exactly? Well, yeah, that's a good question because I think lots of people grapple with that. But there is, in, in the in the MPPF, it does talk about what your sustainable development and this presumption, as you rightly say, and it talks about sustainable development really on on the basis of is it in the right location? Obviously, is the building sustainable itself? But it also talks about economic sustainability. You know, is it is it economically sensible and and is it environmentally sensible? The sustainable development issue is is quite wide ranging, but in general terms, if you're outside the built-up area, you're deemed to be less sustainable because you've got to travel in, and you probably have to travel in in a car, and therefore that's less sustainable. So that's how that sort of links in with the in the built-up area, outside the built-up area point. Okay, it's a it's a topic for another podcast, another day. But uh, that was a, it's, it's useful to kind of get the general gist of some of these things. Um, the the local plan you mentioned that is down to achieve a healthy five year housing land supply. That's how it's kind of phrased, isn't it? In other words, it has to meet local housing needs. So, how does local authorities assess that? Yeah, well, they they, they assess it through the proprietary work preparation work for their local plan, and they have to. And you have to look at a lot of indicators and survey work, look at their economic growth strategy, see whether they're they're meeting, that they are growing economically, whether they need more commercial land to try and whether there's demand for it, first of all, but also whether there's whether they want to allocate land to try to increase the amount of people that are employed in their area, which might help with limiting out migration and traffic flows and what have you. But then also look at, at population indicators see whether the population is going up or down and, and then an, an assessment can then be made on on housing and then and then with that then comes additional infrastructure and schools and parks and what what have you but a draft local plan is actually open for for, for public consultation isn't it i just wonder how people engage in that process and, and whether they have any power or authority to change it the regulations are usually that a local authority will go through two phases of public consultation, regulation 18 and regulation 19. Um, and the reg 18 is usually an early days sort of proposal, which might, for example, be a local authority saying, well, how do you think we should be developing our borough or district over the next 20 years? Should it be that we add incrementally, you know, a small amount of development to every town and village? Or should we for example, say we're going to focus all on a new town or a new village or a you know a couple of sites. So that sort of sets the strategy and also probably sets out or puts out there what strategy should be. And they, they may well suggest one and there's consultation on that. And the local paper that picks up this sort of stuff and runs with it, some of the local conservation area, conservation societies, the parish councils and town councils get to know about the the, the draft plan and the development industry gets to know about the draft plan so you get all the house builders and whatever you're wading in with their comment but there's a chance for people to comment and in the democratic process those points are taken into account and then the reg 19 is having done that and looked at that they then produce the plan which would then allocate various sites for development and the level of provision etc and that then is also consulted upon for i think a minimum of six weeks that then goes to a planning inspector who makes who does a uh, makes an examination of the plan 
And that usually forms a plan inquiry or plan examination where an inspector will lead a discussion around each of the topics of the plan. And it has to, and he has to be reasonably satisfied that that plan is sound. Doesn't have to do a beauty parade of one site versus another, but he has to think that this plan is is sensible, is sound, it's providing the right number of units, it's likely to deliver those units. And at that, although the development industry will be there, again, all the all the other local uh, and national bodies are often at those. So you might find the CPRE, Friends of the Earth, you might find you know, your local parish councils and local some local residents will, will get very engaged with that process, as well as promoters of, of, of the land or, or, or sites will get involved. The local planning authority will obviously be defending their plan. The inspector then listens to all that and he writes a report and he makes recommendations to either make agree the plan is sound and can be adopted or he says, no, it's not sound. Tells the local authority, perhaps they've got to start again or they've got to make some changes. And so he might suggest modifications. And then if he does suggest modifications, they need to be advertised and consulted upon. And then if they're made, he then or she then says, yeah, that's okay. That's a sound plan. No wonder there's so many staff in local councils. Uh, <laughs> so, much, so much bureaucracy, so little time. Well, speaking of time, the, the, that thing I said about reviewed every five years, uh, I, I'm in, quite, quite intrigued by the fact that that very often doesn't happen. The government recently said that uh, councils have to have a plan in place by December 2023. But I, and I just got this quote uh, from the Basildon Echo, uh, but it's from uh, February 22. And it says, uh, the council voted to scrap its local plan, a blueprint to build almost 18,000 homes over the next 12 years. The plan had cost £2 million and had taken eight years to produce. And now the council is preparing to embark on delivering a new local plan as the December 2023 deadline looms, after which the government has stated it would prepare to intervene. So without necessarily picking on Basildon, what's going on? Well, in terms of planning to intervene, if, if local authorities are not producing a plan, the government can send in basically inspectors or staff, maybe planning advisory service personnel or whatever, to try to you know, to, to almost enforce a plan on, on the local authority to a degree that doesn't want to do that. It hasn't actually got that many staff to do that anyway. Um, and it also takes away local democracy, which is often part of, of politics that you know, they want to encourage local democracy. And there are things like neighbourhood plans, which try to make sure that people at a local level get a say. So what often happens is that local authorities struggle politically to get a plan through. In the case of Basildon and many of the Greenbelt authorities around London, there's Greenbelt covering most of the district. There's a big housing need because you know, affordability is through the roof and therefore providing a lot of housing. But then politically, that gets very difficult because you know, the local people that live in um, those areas are often well-heeled, uh, very strong in terms of their objections, um, very knowledgeable, and therefore trying to get that through politically when they've got thousands of people saying no, and that's their voters, it is perhaps a good argument for having less political influence in planning. But there we go. That's another story. So, yeah, I mean, it's likely to be that then developers can come in just ad hoc and just put planning applications in and probably get them approved because they haven't got the five-year housing land supply. Yes, you wait till the very end of the five-year timescale, then it's much easier to get something through on the basis of it being sustainable development. 
Yeah, um, but obviously that's a risky gamble as far as the, the developers are concerned, maybe. But but it is a target, isn't it? We're, we're talking about targets for a five-year plan, and you could have potentially over supply, under supply. You could, you know, you're not going to hit the target on the nose. Yes, you're not going to you're not going to always hit it on the nose. But the the principles in in the MPPF are that that these targets are minima, so they're a target. But you know, you should there's nothing to say you, you can't oversupply actually the housing is needed and and if it's a sustainable form of development then you can go over is there anything more to say on the on the neighborhood plan just that the localism act brought about push really for local local accountability so the, i think the idea really was that you you had so many antis locally that to give them empower them and actually say right well you deal with this issue then. So if a district, you know, a, a requirement for 500 houses a year and it's got 10 parishes, well, then we could actually say, well, you, ex-parish council, you've got to be providing 50 per year. So your plan for five years has got to show some sites that take 250 and you can produce a neighbourhood plan, you can have the consultation, but you've got to make the hard decision as to where they're going to go. What's happened, though, is some authorities have done just that and it, and it's worked really well. But quite a lot of neighbourhood plans are coming through, not allocating any housing at all because they just can't get that through. And they're really relying on the district to actually say, right, well, we're, we're just going to make those decisions. There is always that balance between local and national down to sort of very local. So and the, the national situation is the same you know there's been this debate recently with with Liz Trust saying well we're not going to have we're not going to have these top-down targets so you know the government isn't going to tell you that you've got to produce this many houses in a district and then it's all going to be local accountability the difficulty with that is just getting things done I think you almost need probably have some sort of regional planning and some sort of national target that then makes the local authorities produce a certain amount or else we just as we all know some of us might think we're enlightened and don't want, and would accept housing immediately adjacent to us, but I don't think there are many of us that that would do that. Mostly, people say, no, "Not in my backyard. I don't really want that here," even if they're living in a fairly new house. Michael Gove is back. We're, we're speaking in uh, in middle of November, twenty twenty two. So goodness knows what will happen by the time this podcast comes out. But anyway, Michael Gove is back. Give us your best guess. What's the status of planning reviews at the moment? Winter twenty twenty two all back in the mix to be honest i mean we've we've had we've had the ideas around a couple of years ago about moving to a more zonal system of planning um away from the sort of current system but i would suggest that's probably off the agenda now i think they're probably just looking at for the next couple of years you know with this government keeping things pretty much as they are i think there'll be a bit of encouragement to have some sort of you know investment zones continue to try and level up as they like to call it with you know trying to push some development further north always difficult because there's some demands more in the south and the sites and the available land are probably greater through the midlands and and into the north of the country but i i don't i personally don't see there being a huge change over the next two or three years because i think there's a lot to be done in the economy generally and i think they will they will want to try to encourage house building still because that that is a big driver for the economy which is obviously a big driver for the country generally 
there's a recession on, as you say. Um, yeah. but it seems like uh, Michael Gove's been making these announcements on um, getting rid of ugly buildings in the planning process. It's almost like a slightly reduced um, ambition from the building beautiful agenda. <laughs> and then it's a question of developing more codes uh, for yeah. permission. So is that is that a, is yeah. democracy the way forward? There's now a national design code. Um, that, that was published and a lot a lot of local authorities have got SPD supplementary planning guidance on design and what is good design and what isn't so and a lot of councillors have now got a design officer or heritage officer and what have you that are providing that sort of advice so I think I'm not sure if even more codes are the way to go but in the MPPF there's a push towards good design that you might push that even more to higher quality design which would be no bad thing the difficulty always becomes i think in getting the mass house builders to buy into that you know they're, they're quite a powerful body and some of the mass house builders do a great job but quite often it's boxes the, the criticism i suppose of mass house building over years has always been well you could arrive at a at a site of 300 houses on the edge of bolton and it would look the same as if it was basildon or Brighton or wherever, trying to give some local distinctiveness or sense of place. Yeah, that's key for the designers and the placemakers and the architects, I think. Um, and, and the more the government push that, I think, is, is a good thing. All right, good. Well, I mean, maybe maybe you've covered it, but I just wondered whether there was anything else outside the, what we've already talked about that, you know, you think students, newly qualified architects, whatever, should keep their eyes on. Not necessarily architecture directly, but in terms of planning, I suppose the Environment Bill will be coming into law probably about this time next year, 2023, end of 2023. And that's got some implications in terms of what's known as biodiversity net gain, making sure that every development enhances biodiversity. And, and that can be quite a big limitation on sites. So, you know, if you've got very biodiverse site is hard to make it more biodiverse and certainly hard to put housing on half of it and make the other half all more biodiverse so that's going to be an issue going forward and i think probably in these times of climate change generally flooding issues are, are going to come more and more to the fore we've got so many of our cities coastal cities are going to be impacted by that going forward and linked to that water issues so we've had water neutrality issues and increasingly across Sussex, we've had an issue of, uh, so we've had water neutrality, uh, nutrient neutrality issues, but we've now got water neutrality issues in Sussex. So that is trying to make sure that development doesn't take away more water than, than is currently taken away on the site, which is really difficult on a greenfield site to try to make sure that water, the water uses is, is limited. So they're looking at a whole series of ways of improving that, and that may well involve new infrastructure like desalination plants and uh, new reservoirs which are probably going to be needed going forward because we're taking too much water out of the system and then that as it goes out through through to the to the sea is impacting on biodiversity and on nature conservation interests so mm -hmm. all of those things i suppose you know are, are going to Okay. I thought the nitrogen neutrality tests issue had been, again, kicked into the long grass, if you excuse the biodiverse analogy, uh, but also building new reservoirs. What's the last reservoir was built in the early 1990s, wasn't it? So maybe it's about time. But speaking of not in my backyard, let's see that one go through on a public consultation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, more, more fun, more business. For planners, there you go. Um, all right, look, Peter, that's the end. Thank you very much indeed. Great stuff. Thank you. Uh, 
Undoubtedly, there'll be questions um, raised, um, but uh, so please get in touch with me. I'll pass it on if possible to Peter. You can read more about Peter and the work that DMH Stallard do on www.dmhstallard.com. That's all we've got time for today. Please tune into the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Austin Williams. Many thanks again. Until the next time, goodbye.